Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to episode 321 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk... Filmmaking. Are you sure? From indie film to studio films, to TV, to documentaries and... That's pretty much it. (laughs) (laughs) But also everything in between, if there was anything in between. It's a constant constant source of our debate, but there's not much in between that. Um, I'd say there was a lot. Uh, how to get them made, how to make them, and how to try not to... Royally F them up. In our very, very humble opinion. Today on the show, we have director and writer Charlotte Wells. That's right, she is a well of knowledge. She is the BAFTA-nominated director And very now. Wells regarded. Very Wells regarded. And Paul Mescal, her lead in this film, has been Oscar-nominated for the leading man category in the 2023 Oscars. This is an incredible achievement yep. for an indie film at this level. I'm Giles Alderson. I'm Don Lenoir. And on this week's episode of the Filmmakers Podcast, we dive in with Charlotte mm-hmm. to talk about structuring an unstructured film. That's probably misleading, actually. But um, we, we talk about the, the unconventional way that she's structured her narrative um, but all the depth that she goes into to create the individual scenes in the moments. Talked about working with actors and also street casting with the amazing lead, uh, Frankie Correa, that plays opposite Paul Mescal. She also talks about producing her first film, Raf. Uh, she dives deep into how she wrote After Sun as well and what it was like on set, working with the DP, working with the cast, how she got this movie made. For those of you in the UK, for the filmmakers out there, you'll have heard of this film. You'll have heard of the buzz, you'll have heard of Charlotte, you'll have heard of what she's done, and it's inspiring. This is a debut film as a director. Hugely inspiring. She's gone from shorts to this. You're not going to get much better than that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, no. it's incredible. Incredible. And, and also, you know, she's gone from short, <laughs> gone from shorts to holiday shorts. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who listen regularly, uh, you're used to that. If you don't, this is remarkable punditry from Tom. And it won't be the last one in this episode, that's for sure. There we have it. This is our episode with Charlotte Wells. And as a special bonus, Mm. bonus part of the Filmmakers Podcast, we have casting director Lucy Pardee joining us on Friday. She cast After Sun. Uh, she also cast Rocks and Perfect Ten and so many other amazing films. So she'll be joining us 
So you'll be able to listen to that special bonus episode this Friday. How cool! Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's a, it's a nice, uh, fresh perspective uh, and very useful for actors, if any of you are, are listening. There's some, uh, some good advice there. Yeah, and also for directors working with casting directors as well, we talk about that. But we're going to yes. come to Lucy Pardee after Charlotte Wells. Yeah, I, I think this is a great episode, especially because it's, it's also it's, it's how someone has gone from making a short to their first feature. And it kind of covers a lot of the, the journey, but also it, it took her a long time. Um, and you'll hear about that in, in the the episode. Sometimes you look at people's careers and you think, oh, how did they do that, this or how did they do that? A lot of the time it is a lot of years of development, finding the right producer, finding the right team. And I, and I think it's sort of, it's important and comforting maybe for, for filmmakers that are taking a while to get their movies made uh, to know, you know, this is what waits at the end. If you put the time and the effort in, get nominated for a BAFTA. Totally agree. Work hard. Stuff happens for you. Find the right people, and she definitely did that. Charlotte Wells did. Um, she's also known as Charlie, by the way, but we don't call her by that uh, on the episode. So, I hear there's some news about Three Day Millionaire. Oh my God, Don! Thanks so much for asking. Yes, for those you don't know, I produced the movie Three Day Millionaire. It is available now on Sky Store, and I think in some select cinemas around the UK and on Amazon Prime. But as Dom has alluded to there. Quite rightly so. We are releasing Three Day Millionaire in the USA and Canada on the 21st of February. Mm. That's literally two and a bit weeks away. Yeah, How exciting. And if you've had a if you've had a bad Valentine's Day, it's a, it's a great film to watch. There you go. Uh, and if in the UK, watch it now. Anyway, we've also got some news on some other territories, but we'll drop those at a later point. Any news from your end, Dom Lenoir? Yes, there are some some lovely cinema screenings coming up for the latest Shakespeare Sisters vehicle, um, which Ooh, is an yes. adaption of Much Ado About Nothing, which is called Much Ado. Uh, so there is a date in February. I think it's it the, is the 25th of February. I know, I've written oh, it in my diary. Perfect. Oh, amazing. There we go. So there that's at the Prince Charles Cinema. Giles will probably be there. I will probably be there. They will definitely be there. Um, and yeah, usual sort of shenanigans. And there's a few, couple of other ones across the uh, UK coming up, uh, which you'll be able to hear about very How soon. Exciting. Uh, is there a link yeah. uh, that we can put in the show notes yet? There certainly is, yeah. Great. All right, send that across. We'll stick it in the show notes. Right, let's get to it. This is the fantastic Charlotte Wells talking to myself and Dom Lenoir. Enjoy. Hi. Hey. Hey. How are you? You all right? Um, I'm very, yeah, very well, thank you. Good. Dom's just gone to go tell his housemate to stop playing the bongos. Literally, as you start recording, Dom, bongos. Don't mind some bongos. That's, that's all right for me. It's always fun for a podcast. Always fun. Yeah. 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 Hello. Oh, he's back. How's it going? <laughs> yeah, it's good, thanks. Just found out my my housemate was doing a, a bongo <laughs> bongo drum audition. Oh, it's an audition. Uh, the exact, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm the, the podcast. So, uh, brilliant. <laughs> So yes, Charlotte, all going well. You must be doing a lot of press at the moment now. Oh yeah, I mean, no complaints here. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, that's it. You work so hard to get a film out there, and people now want to talk to you. It's like, yeah, okay, let's let's talk. Yeah, it's a surreal time as well when your movie's out. You've you sort of put in the the blood, sweat, and tears, and you've been through the process of making it, and then it's kind of out there to the world, and you're listening listening to reviewers, and you know, trying to hope that people enjoy it and all the hard earned. Yeah, effort. I mean, it's been it's been a minute at this point, so I feel like I'm. The only thing that continues to be weird is when I look up cinema showtimes 
and my mm. brain takes like 0.1 seconds to catch up and i'm like oh what for some film just for that like 0.1 seconds mm. and then yeah. i and then i realized and it's always very very surreal surreal but wonderful right yeah oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah no it's great it's great we've just had a film out in the cinemas as well and it, it's just a joy even though it's you, you're constantly in this what's going on how are we getting it out there Who, who's watching it what's happening it still feels amazing to just click on cinema listings yeah. and there it is how do you feel about the yeah, whole the whole true. review sort of world i mean you, you've got amazing reviews so far from this from from what i've i've seen yeah that helps doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah like i think i'd have a really different relationship to it if the reviews had all been eviscerating um yeah it's it's tricky i i have i've read i've read a lot i don't read anything i contribute to i will never hear this <laughs> <laughs> um but if it's something a little bit more objective i mean objective but you know what i mean um without my contribution mm. at least uh, i have read a lot i'm not sure i would do it again it's uh, it's a dangerous cycle, and my producers did stage an intervention at a certain mm. point. When, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, because you can, you can get bogged down in reviews. You can get suddenly, oh, what do people think? What does this? And it can really affect you as a filmmaker. And you start thinking, oh god, they were right, they were right, this person was right, and it's weird because it's just someone's view. But yet we take it so personally. Yeah, and inevitably you you gravitate toward the negative at a certain point in time. You seek it out. I don't know whatever human mm. instinct it is that leads us to do that. But at somebody's suggestion, I, I retrain. Uh, and do something else with my life. I was just standing there very despondently before a Q and A. <laughs> my producer marched me wow. over to um, <laughs> yeah. Barry, one of yeah. my other producers, and was like, "Tell her to stop." <laughs> and I, and I did for twenty four hours, and they were a beautiful twenty four hours. <laughs> I think I think every reviewer should have to go through the process of making a film before like the level of of cruelty that they sometimes unleash on something that that they maybe they don't yeah. even understand or they just don't relate to and they've kind of tried to intellectualize and uh... well i think that's it. like i think what's tricky is when the reviews are yeah i mean it's subjective but you mm. wouldn't always know that from reviews <laughs> right yeah um you know like i think they're it's it's those that dismiss any anything as as just like of no meaning to anybody because it had no meaning for them um mm. That that I think is the trickiest when you have poured several years of your life into the creation of something. Yes, but yeah. I've been extremely fortunate with uh, reviews. In fact, after we premiered at Cannes, we were being whisked off to a very fancy lunch. Um, was in the car with two of my producers, and we kind of took turns reading the reviews. I read the only negative one. <laughs> they were like, "Charlie, why? <laughs> yeah, why? Why is this the one?" I'm like, I, "This is just the next one in line. I don't know." Yeah, we we can't help um, it. It's like I can't help it. It's so beautiful up into the light. You know what I mean? We just can't <laughs> like a moth to a flame. It's crazy. Yeah. But then I suppose, like you said, your producer just turned to you and said, "Hey, you know, you've got to do this." We're now they can. We're premiering. Can. Yeah, but, I mean, exactly. But uh, but I imagine even now, if you're feeling that way, they can go. Um, you just been nominated for a BAFTA. <laughs> you know what I mean? Your, your film got best <laughs> British film. You've got, you know, outstanding debut. Your cast is uh, literally there's honors being thrown at them, including <laughs> Oscar nominations. And you're, yeah, literally going, no, but there's this one review. There's this one I'm newspaper. Exactly. Isn't it weird how we do that? Does success is a, what is it? It doesn't mean anything. It's what we feel inside. And you mm. should feel incredibly yeah. proud because your film is, 
stunning as you know i do thank you good. i, I yeah. do i feel proud i feel proud of my own work but i feel even more proud of, of everybody else's so there's no question about that good for us it's fascinating to know how you you know started this because obviously you produced a feature before this it's called Raph or Rafe it's Raph yeah Raph right yeah, so no one asked me about Raph I'd be very glad to talk about Raph oh cool because we know you produced Raph before um, this and you'd made a load of shorts you produced lots of stuff you'd worked so much behind the scenes on films and shorts and yep. making things and suddenly to you know go from that to blowing up massively you know <laughs> film with who people are in it being Oscar nominated as your debut movie as a director is incredible talk us through that process from saying, hey, I want to make After Sun as a feature. Yeah, it's, I mean, like Raph and a lot of the shorts were, were in that time. I mean, um, I went to film school. I went to film school mm-hmm. and business school as a producer um, after doing a few other things and, and feeling like this was what made sense for me. This would be a way to combine many different interests and to work on lots of different types of projects. And then in the course of being at film school, I made a film and, and everything changed. I found this thing that I never thought I'd find, this thing I loved more than anything else that I could direct all of my obsessive energy toward. Mm-hmm. And um, and I made a short film and that film was called Tuesday. Um, it's now on movie, which is very weird because suddenly people are talking to me about this like very first outing into <laughs> filmmaking that I made with a bunch of my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was just creatively satisfying in ways I had never anticipated. And I had really great collaborations on that film with Sam, um, who shot it and, and with everybody else. And I started after that film, which I made at the beginning of 2015, kind of in the autumn of 2015. It was my last year, the beginning of my third year at film school. And I, everybody's thinking about features, what, what are you going to write? And I didn't take a writing class, but I took an independent study with this professor. And I walked in with this idea of a father and a daughter on holiday. And so we watched movies about fathers and daughters. Um, we watched Paper Moon and Alice in the Cities. We watched uh, other films with kids of around that age. I think we watched Corpo Celeste. We watched um, Tomboy somewhere uh, and and among among many others. and. And at that point, I sent myself on holiday to Cyprus alone <laughs> with some fantasy. Of, yeah, I was going to say, that sounds terrible. I, know, right? I sent myself a, away to... <laughs> kind of grossly irresponsible financial decision, to be totally honest with right. you. Okay. But I had some fantasy of like, writing the whole script. Like, I'm going to go away for two weeks and come back with a script. Mm-hmm. And of course, I came back with like two pages and fun time. Were they good two pages, though? Uh, they were fine. <laughs> Acceptable they were, two they were pages. The only two pages I had for about two years, so they were great. Were you going out there to, to research? Were you just sort of absorbing what tourists are like out there? Were, were you kind of trying to observe families? Like, what, what was it that you, you yeah, really I gained? Think, I mean, I think I saw it as a writing, like a self-imposed writing retreat in the environment that I wanted to set this film. And it's true that I, I recalled a lot of details. It had been many years since I'd been on that type of holiday. And and many observations I made down to the singer with the headset mic and the glitter jacket <laughs> that that I drew from that trip, um, and and just the memory of what it was to get on the coach at the airport, yep. and travel through the darkness to arrive at your destination and make all those stops at other hotels yes. along the way. Yeah, I remember it, which was originally in the film. Oh, was it? And um, yeah, okay. 
Yeah, and 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 then it took a long time to write. And I mean, it's a very long eight-year story, but I eventually did write it in 2019 after putting a lot of work in, a lot of world building, a lot of trying to write, which felt like wasted time. But I don't think was looking back. I think I was laying the foundation. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it very quickly, and I spent six months pretending to redraft and just moving around commas. <laughs> um, I sent it to a producer who I'd started to build a relationship with. I'd met her through, you know, a friend of a friend of a friend, kind of introductions through being very lucky to have my short films play at film festivals, uh, mm. Sundance and then TIFF, mm. uh, in the same year in 2017. And we'd been meeting, and I'd been promising the script and failing to deliver it, and eventually I sent it, and she was on board. That was Pastel. That was the Gila Romanski at Pastel. And mm-hmm. we started to move forward. And there was a lot of work to be done in between. Uh, it went through pretty significant rewrites. It got much better. But um, I'd say that the heart of this film coming together was that relationship with my producer and the relationship with my cinematographer, my editor, who were friends from film school. I produced three of Greg's short films. Mm-hmm. I produced one of Blair's short films. It was the last thing I produced, actually. It was a beautiful short called I'm the One Who's Singing um, back in 2018. Um, yeah, it's uh, it was a long, long road. So why don't we drop it in the trailer? Dom, do you want to say what the film's about? After Sun is a journey of a father and a daughter who go on a turkish holiday together and it's about their relationship uh the troubles of the father the the trying to find connection and searching for meaning in a sunny destination i love you love you Why don't you go over and introduce yourself? Dad, no, they're like kids. Why don't you go over and introduce yourself? Mm. Sophie, they're like old. Don't you ever move back to Scotland? No. Why? There's this feeling, once you leave where you're from, that you don't totally belong there again. You okay through there? Don't you ever feel like tired and down and feels like your bones don't work, like you're sinking? We're here to have a good time, eh? You know, I want you to know that you can talk to me about anything as you get older, you know? Done it all and you can too. I wish we could have stayed for longer. Me too. What was was the kind of process in terms of your outlining? Because it it is a film very much of moments between the son and the daughter, um, so the the father and the daughter, and how they relate to each other and and almost what you don't see, because it's very much from her perspective as well. 
how yeah. do you sort of do you, do you kind of go through scenes and say okay this is generally what I want to get from the relationship in the scene bullet point uh, then kind of go into the first draft um was that how you were kind of approaching it before your producer came along so I I worked from an outline that I wrote the first draft from and it was just the day the days day one two three four five six seven it was only two pages and it was stuff that happened he teaches her how to play pool they go on a dive trip mm-hmm. they go to the amphitheater they sing karaoke um but in my head i'm holding much more than that i'm holding what i see the relationship as and how i see their perspectives on each other um contradict their perspectives on themselves or evolve over the course of the film i'm holding so much in my head and it was one of the hardest parts of writing was feeling like i needed a fourth dimension to be able to visualize the film as a whole but eventually i came up with a very complicated index card color-coded systems so that I could see where the rave sat. I could see where the TV sat. Um, and in that first draft, I wrote mostly on instinct. The rave emerged on the page. Blair's short film, the one I just mentioned, had opened with a club a club sequence under a strobe light. Mm-hmm. And I think that image had really lodged itself in, in my mind. He was kind of finishing up that film at that point I was writing. Mm-hmm. And I, I followed it to the end and I found this rave and, and then the redraft process came about how to articulate the feeling that the film built toward and how to calibrate these different elements. But ultimately I had a lot of trust in, or other people had a lot of trust in me. I think ultimately that I knew what this film was because it was really hard to communicate on the page, how that rave would feel, Mm. how this really strange abstract sequence would form the emotional climax of the film successfully. And I didn't know if it would is the truth, but I was willing to bet other people's money <laughs> on finding out <laughs> rather than on self-editing yes. the script to be something safer um but potentially less ambitious mm. artistically what did you write there because obviously we do jump back to those those race scenes a bit how did you expand on them each time within your writing well i think it was a case of understanding what it was as one scene and then considering how that scene um, I mean, it's easy to that's one scene that's split up across the course of the film, but that isn't really how I wrote it. I wrote it not knowing where it was going and an appropriate place to dip back into that world. And then, of course, later I had to really interrogate at what points we entered the rave space and whose perspective we came off because there was a danger it feel like his space, mm. that it feel like his fantasy rather than... Mm to some degree, a psychological space in her mind 20 years later um, that, that is maybe based in reality, but somewhat situated out of place and time. When does it take place? Is is there something concrete that happens there? These were all questions I had to ask over the course of writing. How explicit do I want that space to be? How real should it feel? Um, and that carried through at every stage. It was It was definitely the most challenging both that and Callum's private struggle mm-hmm. were the most mm. challenging aspects of the script, of shooting, and of the edit. Mm. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price price line 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I, I was going to say, I mean, in terms of those, those two aspects, like, like his, in terms of the balance of what to tell the audience versus what not to, to tell them. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, guess, I guess when I was watching it, I was kind of thinking, well, it, it's in hindsight, as you start to introduce her when she's older, she doesn't know what these gaps are and what his his struggle is, and that's kind of why it's it's seen from that perspective. Um, yeah. But it, it is it's it's really haunting because you don't quite know, you know what what's going on in, in his mind, and and you sort of I think it's a very good look at sort of depression and and the moments when people are okay, where they seem everything's fine, and then what the reality is in those other moments and the disconnects um, with people. But I mean. Were you were you unsure in terms of the ending, how open ended to leave it? Because um, I mean, it is open to interpretation. Like, I, I wasn't sure if he if he if he died soon after the holiday or or something like that had happened, and this was sort of looking back with that lens from her, or or if it was something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, I know what my intention was with it. Mm-hmm. However, I also knew from the experience of making short films that my intention would not be read by everybody. And that people would bring their own life experiences and relationships into the cinema as they sat down. And that it would inform the context that they built around what happens at the end of the That being said, I always felt as though their interpretation of the narrative events that unfold after the film, or even in the film, the feeling of, of the end, mm. ideally, is somewhat consistent even if its context is a little bit different. Um, the feeling of loss, the feeling of the love that transcends that. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was okay with that. That being said, I had to always work toward exactly what it was I was trying to express, both because this ultimately is expression of self in some way, um, and just trusting that that is what had worked before and being aware of the space. But I was never interested in diagnosing Callum or, you know, having him on the phone to Sophie's mom, like calling in some <laughs> medical prescription. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It was it was never interesting to me because, as you say, Sophie doesn't really know. And Paul, as he eloquently says, Callum doesn't either. Callum doesn't have a full grasp on what's wrong. He knows he succumbs to these moments of absolute desperation. Mm-hmm. He knows what he feels, but he doesn't necessarily know why. And And so... 
we had to keep him somewhat at arm's length, but it's a line to walk. It is a knife edge of, of subtlety. And it's one that I walk in every film I make. And sometimes you fall on the wrong side of it. And sometimes to some people, it is just so painfully obvious hmm. and other people have no idea what your film is about. Hmm. And um, you're never going to capture everybody. No. And so I'll always, I'll always opt to, to deepen the connection with the people who are on board and try to reach people who aren't going to feel it, yes. even if they understand it. Yeah, that's why you should ignore that one review that says, wow, <laughs> exactly what you just talked yourself around that. Look, I, I, the, the, you know, the fact this is set in the 90s as well, well, around that time, wherever you're setting it, it, it totally connected to me. And the fact that he didn't know what was going on. Well, around that time, there was no way you'd express that feeling of what you're, you know, if you're depressed or whatever. You wouldn't tell anyone. That's why he keeps it all in. You just, you know, yeah. sort of angry men running around. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's really stunning. It's really stunning what you've done. And I love what you said about the knife edge. How then, because now you've got this script that is on a knife edge and people might know, know which way it's going. How did you get it made? Because that's the tough bit. And when you've got a script that could go one way or the other and people are going, well, what does it mean? What's happening potentially? How then did you go, right, no, this is what it's going to be and here's how I'm going to do it? Yeah, I mean, I, I was so lucky to find a producer who lived in me, who even, even like, <laughs> which always surprised me. Like, I, I, I mean, she had, it was like, when I first met Adela, fairly fresh off Moonlight Academy, Award. Mm, right. <laughs> and and I just did feel like disbelief that we were starting to walk this path together and it was my first film and of course now understand why and 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 the types of projects she's interested in but ultimately I was very lucky to have a producer that I was I was walking that road with together and who was a creative partner in helping figure out the script and how to allow it to connect with the most amount of people, how to allow people to connect with it on the page, which is irrelevant at the end of the day, like however good a script is on the page, because it's about realizing it in the film, certainly if you're writing and directing it. Mm. I had a conversation yesterday about pitching and how to be good at pitching. And it's like, well, you just need to be good enough to get people to read the script. And the script just needs to be good enough to get people to, you know, like you're always working toward the goal of the film if you're writing and directing um and and yeah i kind of had a partner in that and also of course very lucky to be british and have access to um money through broadcasters and, and national funding that you certainly don't have in america it's much much harder if you're uh, an american making a first-time film and having to piece together uh disparate sources of private equity for the most part and and so I had built a bit of a relationship with Eva Yates from the BBC. I'd cold called her at Sundance with my first short that played there. Good for you. Yeah. Was at film, she was at Film 4 at the time, and someone mm -hmm. had slipped me slipped me a list of delegates. And I was like, well, Film 4, cool. Mm -hmm. I wonder if she'll meet me for coffee. And she did. And um, nice. we'd stayed in touch. And Adela had just produced Never Really, Sometimes Always, Eliza Hitman's film that they had done partnership with BBC as well. So that was kind of an enduring um, or a relationship that there was an opportunity to take further on this this film and then we brought on a, a a british producer scottish producer and amy jackson and and we applied for funding through the bfi and screen scotland and we did have one piece of american equity in there too um 
And and I feel very fortunate, I suppose. I mean, no, I suppose I absolutely do. But I think amid the question of how you're getting your film, period of waiting and anticipation and nerves, it did always feel like we were moving forward. And for that, I feel really grateful. Even as I, even as I was redrafting the script, from the day that I sent that script to Pastel, it felt like we were always taking steps toward making it happen. And and we we, ne- we never got caught in that purgatory that can so often happen when you're making a film, where suddenly everything stalls. Were you always kind of sure what what kind of tone it was going to be? That it was going to be sort of, I mean, I don't want to say art house, but it's it's sort of in it's going in that direction. It's it's like independent. It's it's festival awards type film. Was that always part of the plan in terms of the pitching? And you know, you knew that that was the way that the money would make sense for. Um, or did you kind of try other routes as well when you were on the journey before you got to that route? No, this was the route that we pursued off off the bat. I mean, it's a film that prioritizes tone over plot. Um, I don't know that that is, I mean, I, you know, it becomes semantic at the end of the day, however you want to describe that type of film. Mm. Um, but it certainly isn't a film that, that fits into a classical three-act structure of a narrative where one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. Um, but I think that was clear from my shorts that that's mm. what I was interested in. I think that was clear from the references I had that that's what I was interested in. Um, and uh, and it was certainly clear from the script. Hmm. Yeah. What about on set then? What about your day-to-day working with you know paul mescal and you know your fantastic lead girl frankie corio how was your working relationship obviously you've done loads of shorts you've worked with actors how do you like to play how do you like to make sure you're getting what what you need yeah i mean i'd worked with actors but you don't really have the time to build a trust in each other for films and that is something i was really looking forward to in this and was looking for especially in the actor who was going to play callum like a real partner in 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 developing that character and, and portraying that character and Paul is so good. I was able to kind of hand over my, my file on Callum, so to speak, and then let Paul use that as a foundation on which to build and through which to, to find his own empathy for Callum and an expression of that. So much of production was centered around Frankie. It had to be, she was 11, 10 years old, turned 11 on set and had never acted before. Her hours were incredibly constrained. They were our greatest constraint on that. It wasn't on set. It wasn't 35 millimeter film. It wasn't light. It was Frankie always, almost always. And um, it was about giving what her... What kind of restrictions the- were, were there on, on that kind of thing for, for filmmakers that are looking to do something with an actress at that age or an actor? Like yeah, sort of so their hours are constrained by their local education authority. Um but Frankie was allowed to be on camera for four hours a day with extremely specific breaks. And on camera meant rehearsing. It meant it being in hair and makeup. It meant being mic'd up. It meant talking to me if the camera wasn't real. Wow. Um, and she could be on set for nine and a half, but there were very frequent and, yeah, like I say, specific breaks within that. Um, mm, which restricts you as well doesn't it because suddenly your schedule is based totally around that so you've now got to think okay how do we make this film work within the time frame that we've got to shoot it but 
she's in so much of the film so you you you, you know you're almost not doing Paul's side of it shooting all her side and then coming back to Paul I, I don't know but... yeah yeah there were times that I sat in and I read for Frankie and I'd forget my lines because I'm trying to evaluate Paul's performance and, mm-hmm. and see everything else that's going on and he was so accommodating of that I mean he's such a professional and he mm-hmm. was incredibly understanding but of course would much be performing opposite Frankie and it was actually really hard to modulate tone there because the mood would just be so much lower when Frankie wasn't around her energy was so high Mm. and so um you had to be very careful that you were matching that Paul was matching um the energy of the scene with her but we tried we tried to give him as much opportunity as possible to to perform with her um on his singles. Uh, and I mean, an, uh, four hours sounds like a lot in some ways, but the reality is m- most of that time is camera sets up and lighting yeah. tweaks and mm-hmm. you're not actually shooting for four hours a day. I think we shot probably on average an hour a day, um, a film. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a lot of time. I mean, you know, anybody who's been on a film set knows that, um, yeah. it takes, it takes a lot of time. And that time but goes very quickly, very quickly. So, were you work- so quickly. Yeah. So yeah. were you working closely, obviously, with your DP? Were you planning your shots way before? You know, were you in the space, you know, beforehand, obviously rehearsing, but were you very specific that with Greg? Uh, Gregory O'K. Okay, yeah, I mean, Oak. Okay. <laughs> Gregory O'K. Okay. Yeah, we, um, <laughs> we started months before we got to Turkey. Uh, and it was really about developing visual language of the film it wasn't just shot listing it was figuring out how we could use the camera to express point of view differentiate mm-hmm. point of view um establish sophie as an adult as the overarching point of view in the film and how to make that felt in scenes where callum was alone for example um how to use zooms how to use camera movement on motivated camera movement what that would mean how um and then we got through maybe half to two thirds of the script that way. Mm-hmm. And we had really extensive shot lists. Uh, there was still high efficiency in how we were shooting, but mm. we were, and it wasn't conventional coverage in terms of shot reverse shot, but our shot lists were extensive. And what happened was inevitably <laughs> we would get to set, we would take too much time or something would take too much time. And we would have to consolidate drastically. Um, sometimes collapse like eight shots into one. Wow. Wow. I mean, not often, but sometimes those scenes simply didn't work uh, in one shot. Sometimes they did. I mean, were some of those the really creative shots or, or are those more like playing out masters? I mean, there's, there's shots like, you know, the, like the TV where you've got the reflections, which, uh, which feel very deliberate. Like, were those always planned um well in advance i mean yeah i mean sort of kind of focusing on the actors to kind of get that four hours to be maximized you know work around them rather than around the shots sorry yeah i mean because we didn't have rules we were very clear no rules but we certainly had strategies of how to shoot um certain types of scenes what it meant for sophie to have a direct point of view and how we would shoot that up close fragmented uh, how we would shoot Callum alone. Um, mm-hmm. And so if we didn't have a plan, like I, I know that the scene where Sophie is tidying up the bedroom, mm-hmm. we had no, that was a rare example where we had nothing. We had no idea how we were shooting that. 
<laughs> and we just had the we had a minute. Greg set up. He found a shot. The camera is really fluid. It tracks her around the room. She stops in front of the mirror. She throws something on the bed. Um, you know, we got a couple of a kind of closer almost inserts there, but it just works so well and it is so effortless and it's one of my favorite scenes and a rare scene of Sophie alone um in that way um the tv there were shots that were written into the script the tv is one of them but it wasn't written with reflections it was written with a kind of uh fantasy room geography that couldn't really be executed and in fact what we found was in the convex television uh, the opportunity for so many more images on screen. I think there's probably six images right. in that frame at a certain point. Callum, mm. you know, Callum reflected in the edge of the TV on the balcony, the image on the TV, reflection of her in the TV, the mirror, the TV screen through the mirror. It's so satisfying. And that's really an example of all the elements and all the departments coming together to solve a problem, camera design. Um, like what is the best version of this? And it's so much better than what was on the page. Although the blueprint for that idea seen playing out on a TV live and seeing on the periphery of the friend then move around. Um, yeah. It adds to the nostalgia as well. Like the, it really sort of draws you into the, that VHS handy cam memories of those, those eras gone by. No, it's, um, yeah. it's beautiful. I find that really powerful. powerful. Uh, it really is. Um, just to wrap up then, cause we know you've got an extensive schedule right now. Um, Moving forward to your next film, what will you take with you that you learnt as a director, producer, writer, mainly director, writer in this case, that you might do differently? Uh, and within that, some advice for someone who hasn't made their first feature yet. It's two questions in one, I know. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Many things. Um, I would... If, if a scene wasn't working, I would... St- I would breathe and I would think if I had to capture this scene in a single image without any dialogue, what would it be? And I would shoot it. That's probably the the single most practical thing that I would do just so that nothing ever goes to waste. You, you know, when something's not working and it, it like there, there were things on, on set that, that, yeah, you know, they're not working and you know, maybe you'll figure out a way for it to work after the fact. But so often I, I can see that how if I just got this one image, mm-hmm. it would have served its purpose and it would have communicated what I wanted to communicate with it. Um, so practically speaking, I'd say that. But in terms of script, I think you can't execute perfectly. It's not possible. Uh, and I think it's important to know that going in. I think it's important to have a script that can still support your emotion or your idea whatever it is you're trying to express if you don't execute perfectly and you can't predict what you're going to lose it might be your favorite thing it might be something you thought was absolutely non-negotiably essential um, but maybe you lose it and you just you need to have enough that it can still stand and I feel really lucky that I did because we sure didn't execute <laughs> everything perfectly um, a couple of things we came pretty close and I think that is like a massive accomplishment in and of itself the TV, we executed better under pressure. Mm. Miraculously, we executed pretty perfectly. The conversation on the float in the mud baths, we had six pages mm. of dialogue to shoot in 30 minutes somehow. We, it <laughs> didn't feel like we executed it perfectly, 
that was a very long, sad, quiet drive to the amphitheater after that right. morning. Right. But but it's there. But it's there. And people love it. You know? It's a deeply haunting and, and really moving film. And I think one of the best I've sort of seen on on that kind of relationship with a parent and uh, and child and depression and you know, all those nuances of family holidays. So very well done. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Listen, Charlotte, thank you. This has been lovely. Congrats. Yeah, thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you. All the best. Nice to talk to you guys. Bye. That was really cool. Enjoyed it Mm, a lot. Great chat. Yeah, really good. It's fascinating how she took eight years to write it. Eight Mm. years development. Eight years with that whole team. And the fact that she managed to get Barry Jenkins on board you know the director of Moonlight through Adele Romanski you know the producer who championed Charlotte that's so cool and this can happen to you if you're in the right place at the right time if your writing's really good people will see it and it will make a difference and uh, you know just get a a cheeky meeting at a festival that's what Charlotte did she um I think it was Edinburgh. I can't, I can't remember if it was Edinburgh or another one, but she she sent she sent an email to someone that was going to be at the festival, uh, met them for a coffee, and there we go. And there we go. And there we have it. The rest is history. And there it is. After Sun is out. In a boots chemist near you. <laughs> Always make sure you have to hydrate your skin after going in the sun. <laughs> so there we have it. That was Charlotte Wells. After Sun is out now. Links to all that will be in the show notes. Do go watch it. Um, do go support indie filmmaking and this quite frankly brilliant breakout movie you can go out there making films people you can do it you can write those scripts you can get to those top producers and if you do you're lucky enough to rise up and do well send the elevator back down you must so until next Tuesday when we have TAR director Todd Field potentially Or we have Andor and Sharper director Ben Caron. Mm, Or we have Dexter Fletcher. Shh. Don't tell anyone. Dexter Fletcher. Dexter Fletcher. There we go. Right. Thanks, Dom. Thanks, Giles. See you all next Tuesday. Take care, everyone. Have a good time. Stay safe in the sun. (laughs) After sun. (laughs) There we go. That would be good to go in there. All right. Take care. Yeah. Bye. Bye.